0: Get a seat. If you haven't gotten a worksheet, there's a worksheet in the back. And uh, the title on the worksheet is uh, Compassion and the Doctrine of Hell. And you said, I thought we were talking about Catholicism. And we'll get there. Um, And I'll describe how that goes. But it's good to be with you tonight. I think the subject that we're going to cover tonight is uh, very important to all of us. If you look at the very first slide, the gospel, Jesus rescued me from eternal death, so I will live my life on earth for him. Actually, the word that we're going to focus a lot tonight on is that word eternal death. What does that mean? And we'll get into that as we go through. Before we head there, let me just give one um, sort of an advertisement to a book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. This obviously does not deal with Roman Catholicism, but it deals with Islam. And actually, that was going to be the topic that I was going to speak on tonight. I'll share why that changed just a little bit. But I would just say, this is a very fascinating book. It's a narrative. It's a story of a devout Muslim, and within it you'll discover the heart, tradition, practices of a devout Muslim family. It's a heart-wrenching story, but it's a beautiful story. It would help you understand the Islam, the faith of uh, the Muslims. It defines Islamic terms. It showcases Islamic arguments against Christianity, which is very enlightening. It has appendices on the back that demonstrate biblical answers to Islam. It's an easy read. It's a great book. I do have a few of these if you're interested. And if you know what's going on in Syria right now, just understand that this is a civil war between the Sunnis and the Shiites. It is much bigger than Syria, and it's going to impact the entire world. So knowing about Islam, is very, very important, and maybe at some future Sunday night that can be covered. Where we're going to move tonight actually deals with hell, and the reason I came here, and any of you that stays in the media understand that the Pope has made some very interesting statements about hell, and uh, because of that, when you look at the world in which we live, there's over 2 billion Christians at least under the umbrella of Christians. And I think most of you are aware that at least 1.2 billion are Catholic. Over half of Christian as defined under the umbrella are Catholics. And my thought was, I'm going to guess in the audience here tonight, you're going to rub shoulders with Catholics far more often than you will with those who have the faith of Islam. And both are very, very helpful, but I thought with what was going on in the world in which we live, this topic becomes very, very important to us. So that's why I wanted to go over that with you. First of all, let me just say the trends within evangelicalism, it's changing. And I want you to be aware of this over the last 20 years, the number of Americans who believe in the fiery down under has dropped from 51 from 71% to 58. Heaven, by contrast, fares much better and among Christians remains an almost universally accepted concept. Now let me just say if we If that question was just on hell, I understand the percentage. If I was to push that to how many believe in an eternal hell, you would see that percentage much lower than what it is. Because let's be honest, as we consider underlying these statistics is a conundrum that continues to tug at the conscience of some Christians who find it difficult to reconcile the existence of a just, loving God with the doctrine that dooms billions of people to eternal punishment. Let's be honest with ourselves. This is one of the most difficult doctrines to really understand. And I will say to you, as Brad taught on predestination, I can't get my head around predestination, even though it's well presented. I cannot get my head around this either. But it's certainly being presented in the word of God and is worth our studying, but many people deal with this. And that'll come out as we go through and understand the concepts here. Everlasting torment. This is Clark Pinnock, who is a very famous um, uh, evangelical scholar, states this, Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims whom he does not even allow to die, Roke Clark Pennick. He died 2010. We're not talking about ages ago. We used to use some of this man's books in our studies But obviously, he, within the evangelical community, struggles with the concept of an eternal or everlasting torment. Here's another statement. My prediction is that even within conservative evangelical circles, the annihilation view of hell will be the dominant view in 10 to 15 years, says Preston Sprinkle, who co-authored the book called Erasing Hell, which is in 2011, debuted as, num- as number three on the New York Times bestseller list. I base that on how many well-known pastors secretly hold that view. I think we are at a time and a place when there is a growing, um, growing suspicion of adopting tradition for the sake of tradition where this man stands, I'm not even sure, but he wrote this book and another book that actually has four views on hell. One is the traditional view that many of us are very familiar with. The other is annihilation. The other is ultimate reconciliation that at some point, everybody will repent even after spending time in judgment. There will be a universalism. You say, do people believe that? Yes, yes. I have a very dear friend who I've spent years with. We've had great, great communication. But in the last years, this is the view that he has adopted. I have gone back and forth with this friend dialoguing, trying to understand where he's coming, but he is right here as far as universalism. What's interesting as well is Purgatory, which we consider a Catholic viewpoint, actually is being adopted not with that name, but the idea that, yes, hell lasts for a while, but in the end it will purify everyone. Ultimately, everybody will be in paradise. Those concepts are far more popular today than ever. And we need to think through the issue and it becomes very, very important as we go through. John Stott also believed in the concept of annihilation. John Stott has many great books. He's very famous in evangelicalism. He just passed away briefly, but again, he adopts the whole concept of annihilationism, that the souls of the lost are eventually allowed to perish instead of burning throughout eternity in the lake of fire of a literal... Stott's belief in annihilationism ran contrary to the beliefs of the Anglican church and many other mainstream Christian denominations. This is a big point and discussion point within the evangelical church and that we just want to take a a look at that. Now with that, I'd like to move to, to the area of Catholicism so you understand what the Catholic Church teaches. And then I would like to look at a few clips from the Pope and things that are taking place within the world today. The Catechism of the Catholic Church. This came out in the 1990s. This is the official statements of the Catholic Church in all of their doctrine. You can get this at the library, you can buy it any place. If you want to read exactly what Catholics believe or at least are supposed to believe, I'm not saying all Catholics believe it, but this is the official stand of the Catholic Church. Now, I just looked up as I went through the catechism, and what they do is they number every paragraph in the book. Now, this will give you some Catholic teaching. This is where they're at. The teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell. Hell. And its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in the state of mortal sin descend into hell where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is the eternal separation from God in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created for, for his lot. And so the idea here, the Catholic doctrine is very clear here. I mean, it, it, mortal sin is a serious sin. Their teaching is that if you commit a mortal or serious sin, you say, well, what is that? Well, immorality would be a mortal sin. It used to be a mortal sin if you missed mass on Sunday. If you would steal a large Amount that clearly is a mortal sin, there would be numbers of things that are labeled mortal sins. And what they teach is if you die after committing a mortal sin, you will be damned in hell. That's the official teaching of the Catholic Church. This was so real to me when I was raised as a young person. This whole fear of hell was so real. It's for that reason No Catholic in good conscience can tell you I know for sure that I'm going to heaven. They cannot because they don't know if somehow in the latter part of their life they might be guilty of a mortal sin. They're doomed here. And when I say hell, I'm not talking about purgatory. Purgatory is for those who are not dying in this state, but aren't pure enough, they have to go through purgatory. Hell and purgatory are two different places within the Catholic Church. Even the Pope himself could not say, I know for sure that I'm going to heaven because he would have to fear the very same thing. Now that becomes so important, and the existence to hell was very real to me as a young person. That's why when the gospel was first shared with me and my friend said he knew for sure, this is exactly what I thought about. I said, you can't know that for sure because you don't know if you're going to commit a mortal sin. Well, they don't, you know evangelicals or whatever, they don't believe in a mortal sin. So I was curious about why he was saying it. That's why I went to a priest and I said, Father, I ran into a man that said he knows for sure. Is that possible? He said, I admire the man's faith, but no, it's not possible. Why? They're tied to this doctrine right here. They can't know that for sure. As you go through, God predestines no one to hell for this, again, another paragraph, a willfully turning away from God, a mortal sin is necessary, and persistence in it until the end in the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of her faithful, the church implores mercy on God. That would be within the Mass. And uh, as they go through, again, hell is a reality as you go through When I trusted Christ and I understood that God granted me eternal life, if you've heard my story before, at the end, when I finally see Jesus said, he that believes in me has, present tense, everlasting life. And when I realized that I had everlasting life, I went out into a parking lot and I literally skipped 300 yards all the way to my car with a Bible underneath my arm, but I'll tell you the thoughts that went through my mind. I'm never going to hell. I'm never going to hell. And I say that because in the world in which we live, hell is not taught. And therefore, even in the evangelical communities that I read articles, they said, it's almost disappeared since the 1960s. So people do not fear hell. They don't even believe it exists. To me, I believe. So when a man came with the word of God, you can see how that doctrine actually readied me to hear the word of God and to take it seriously. This is not a lost doctrine. and should be a doctrine that, that we should um, consider. Pope Francis is a very popular pope. And maybe you have talked with Catholics and others. He's a very humble man. He does not take advantage of all of the niceties that many of the previous popes had. He's done that all the way back to the time when he was a cardinal. And because of that, he's very, very popular with the Catholic Church, not just with the Catholic Church, but with the world Now, it's interesting, as as you consider this man compassionate, loving, we're going to look at another clip just in a minute, but I read a a book called To Change the Church. This is written by a Catholic author, Russ Dolphin, and um, in it, he reflects on the Catholic Church over the last 60 years. I learned so much from the book. I'm not recommending this book. It takes a little bit of work to go through it, but there's a lot of politics within the Catholic Church, and there's a lot of small groups that vie for power. There's conservative groups. There's more progressive groups that are trying to gain power in the Catholic Church, and as you get to the College of Cardinals, it becomes important because the Cardinals are going to select the next pope. So as that happens, that whole process happens, what happens is you have different groups vying together, then they align themselves, you have progressives, you have those that are conservative. When this man came, because they didn't know a lot of his views, they weren't sure where he was going to come down. But as it plays out, he's far more progressive than he is conservative in the area of doctrine. And yet he's tied to the catechism, but what is interesting and what's going on, and if you pay attention even to, to when he makes statements, they're very ambiguous. They can be interpreted from either side. He does that on purpose because he's progressive in his thoughts, and he wants to move the church more towards compassion. Even in the area of homosexuality, he will make ambiguous statements, so he doesn't leave the doctrine of the church, but he also wants to reach out because compassion is his strong card. He wants to play that, and he feels like the tenor of the Catholic church has not been that. Now... Keeping that in mind, let me just share several things that have happened very recently with the Pope. First of all, he had an interview with a, um, a journalist, Eugenio Scalfari, who is an Italian journalist, 93 years old. He writes for the La Repubblica. And this is what he records He records the Pope talking about people. They are not punished. Those who repent, obtain God's forgiveness and take their place among the ranks of those who who contemplate him. But those who do not repent and cannot be forgiven disappear. A hell doesn't exist. The disappearance of sinning souls exists. Now, that... Is, is a statement that's being debated. The reason is this 93-year-old journalist doesn't record anything. He does everything by memory. So you can imagine, after he reports this, the Catholic authorities, knowing what Catholic doctrine teaches, say, no, he didn't say that at all, although it's happened twice now, not just once. And so there's a little suspicion here that he uses this journalist to leak information, but it's not official. That's one thing that happened. But there's something else that took place very recent as well, and I just want to share this with you as well. Did you follow his answers that he gave as he goes through Even you could hear the words in, well, Spanish or Italian, ateo, an atheist. That's the whole idea. And yet he gave comfort to this little one. That was a difficult position to be placed in when a little boy comes with his father who has passed away. How do you answer? And yet I think you see within the answers that were given This man truly does have what the world would define as compassion. But was his answer according to the word of God? Was his answer even according to Catholic doctrine? In neither place it was. So do I think that there's going to be confusion within the Catholic church? Yes. Yes, I do. A lot in the coming days as you listen to answers similar to this. Just on a side note, how would you have answered this boy if he would have come to you? I do pray that there would be compassion and understanding and trying, I I thought through this just a little bit. What would I have said? I, I think I mainly would have gone, did your father know about Jesus? That would be one question you could ask. And clearly, if he had all four of his sons baptized, he certainly had to be familiar with the name of Jesus. Then I think I would have laid down sort of a simple plan if he understood what Jesus did and he put his trust in that, he would be saved just like anybody else. And still, you don't know what a man does in his heart whether he ever had a clear understanding of that, we don't know. You could give some comfort there in not knowing what goes on in a person's heart, but to give blanket comfort like that with not addressing doctrinal, is that really an answer in compassion? That's the question that we have to ask. I, it just really doesn't come out that way. I would just like for a few minutes as we go through to consider this whole idea of the eternality of eternal life and the eternality of eternal death biblically. Now, you consider some of these verses that contain the plural Ionius. Now, look at the Greek word Ion Ion is the singular Greek word that stands for age. In the plural, it could be ages, thus could be translated eternity. Now, here's several verses that use the plural of that word in in Scripture, and I think you're familiar with a number, them. I don't need to read all of them, 315, right before the the well-known one, it says, it, it says, so everyone who believes in him will have, Iones, eternal life. And then for God so loved the world in this way, he gave his only, his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Again, the plurals are being used to convey the idea of eternity. That's the whole idea, so I can ask almost anybody if they would dispute how long is eternal life. I've never run into anybody. Well, it's just a little while. Almost everybody says it is forever. And I think that's the clear idea of these verses. It's forever. Now, there's another phrase. The usage of the Greek phrase, aistus aiones ton aione, into the ages of ages. There you see the word for eternity, but it's used twice. You can see it in the Greek, it's translated that. It clearly is translated, <coughs> excuse me, forever, or the idea is forever and ever. I don't think there's any word that is, you could use to convey the idea of eternality than this word right here, stronger even than the plural. Now, keeping that in mind, if you take your Bibles very quickly, let's just walk through a few of these verses so that you understand the clear teaching of Scripture because this is worthwhile. So take your Bibles, if you have your phones, just walk through these verses so that you pick up the idea of what's being shared here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. As you look at that verse in the book of Revelation, It says this, that it says in verse 17 leading into 18, Don't be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive. Now here's the phrase. Forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Who is it speaking about? Jesus Christ. So how long will Jesus Christ exist? Forever and ever, no end. That's clear. It's strong, isn't it? Okay, look at the next one Revelation 4.9. 9. This, this phrase is used five other times outside the book of Revelation. Every time used outside the book of Revelation, it talks about God's existence or his praise in the very same way. Look at Revelation chapter 4 and, and verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, again, speaking of God's existence, it is forever and ever. Then go to the next one, Revelation 5:13, as you walk through the book of Revelation and this phrase, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under earth, on the sea, and Everything in them saying blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb what is it? forever and ever again the strongest construction in the Greek to speak about forever again praises to God forever then look at um, Revelation chapter 7 verse 12 Again, we run into the very same thing. Um, There it says, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Revelation 10, verse 6. It's worth looking at your scriptures, so it's so clear to you. Verse 6. He swore an oath by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth. But again, talking about the existence of God, forever and ever. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. These are all the occurrence of this phrase. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign for how long? Ever ever. And ever. Any question on defining this word with the existence of God and praises? There is no question here, is there? Then go to Revelation chapter um, 15. Let me see. No, I'm sorry. Go to 14, verse 11. Then it says this the ones that received the mark of the beast and the smoke of their torment. Will go up what? Forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or anyone who receives the mark in his name. If you're going to be consistent, what would you have to say? How long will the torment last? This is a very difficult doctrine. We're just trying to understand and be consistent with Scripture. Revelation 15, 7, it says this One of the four living creatures gave seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever, talking about the existence of God. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. This speaking about the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then you have Revelation 20 verses 11 down through 15 and 15 says, And anyone who was not found written in the Lamb's in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. How long will that last? It seems that the scriptures are clear as you go through each of these occurrences of this word. Even a quick glance at the study of Revelation 19:20, 20, 20, verse 4, the verses we looked at within the context reveal that the false Christ and the false prophet had been in this place of judgment for a thousand years before Satan himself arrived. We're not talking about annihilation here, folks. That's not what's being taught in Scripture. Here's a very simple verse in Matthew, chapter 25, verse 6. When he comes to the sheep and the goats and the goats are removed and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. And normally when I sit down and reason with someone, I first will ask, how long does eternal life last? Everybody says forever. Then if you're going to be consistent, even within this verse, how long does the punishment last? Forever. Eternal. It's the very same Greek word used in the very verse. So clearly, it's there. <laughs> to me, this is still so hard to understand the concept but we're simply trying to understand what the scriptures teach on this. And clearly, I think the scriptures teach that it lasts forever. There's a number of other verses. I could give you some, we won't look them up. 2 Thessalonians 1:9 talks about everlasting judgment. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48 speak of against annihilation because it talks about where the fire is not quenched, the worm doesn't die. All of that is there. Matthew 13 says they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why does God include that truth here for us to look at. Because, you know, as I think about that, I still can't make sense. This is something Brad gave us last year. When we're perplexed, it is not time to despair, but to worship and to be reminded that we are not God. As, as I think about the doctrine, like when I think about evangelism, Why do we evangelize? Number one, because God commands us to evangelize. That's the first reason. He said, go make disciples. Go in all the world and preach the gospel. So that's why we do that. Secondly, I think, to me, I love to see the fruit. It gives me great joy as I look in an audience and maybe if I've had the opportunity to work and to encourage someone, To watch them praising God brings great delight to me to see a heart changed, worshiping God in truth. What a joy to watch that, isn't it? That's why we evangelize. But this part enters into Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You know, as you look at our Lord and how he wept over Jerusalem, when you look at the Apostle Paul, that says that he states that I have an intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart, for I could wish, I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers. I remember as I had a um, professor in Bible college. He was a great evangelist. I looked up to him so much, filled with the Spirit of God, and he would say, if you ever lose your love for people, would you sit down and read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Those are hard verses, folks. And I think another reason why we evangelize is because we know that judgment is on the horizon. We just don't talk about it a lot. I have to admit, even in evangelizing people, a lot of times I don't bring up hell very often. I'm mainly far more positive. I sometimes stay away, but there's times to bring this up. It clearly can be used by God to help people understand the seriousness of this whole thing. I uh, was thinking through the character of God, why does hell exist and I still struggle with it? I remember there's a passage in the book of Ephesians that talks about God's intense love for us, and it says there, Paul prayed that that we would be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. And then he said this, that Christ would be rooted in our lives, but that we may be able to comprehend The entire, the depth, the height, the depth, the length, the width of the love of God, which says to me, we talk about the love of God, but I really wonder how many of us do not understand the intensity of his love. I think it's beyond anything we can even imagine. And we will see that throughout eternity. We will learn. But even now, I think God would desire for us to understand the intensity of his love, his character. But he also has an intensity in holiness that I don't think we understand either. And I think he also has an intensity in wrath that we do not understand. My prayer is that God would help us understand this doctrine that is quickly fading in the evangelical church. So you wonder where in the world is it outside the evangelical church? But it's taught in Scripture. And even if we struggle with it, it's there. God has put it there for a reason. And I pray that it would give us great desire to share and understand the seriousness of our life. I just wrote this it says, The world applauds compassion over doctrine. So people like the Pope. The world is going to celebrate, especially if he steps away from whether it be a doctrine about the eternality of hell or if it be the doctrine of homosexuality. They would applaud because his compassion to the world is strong. This is what a leader should look like. And yet, God celebrates those who quietly proclaim truth with compassion. I don't know if our message will be popular and I know the idea of hell is certainly not a popular idea. But who spoke about hell more than any other person in scripture? I think all of us understand Jesus spoke about this doctrine more than any other person in Scripture. And certainly there was a warning there as well. I pray, I know it's a heavy teaching. I know it is. There's times, though, we have to go over and pray that we would believe the doctrines of Scripture And with new compassion, proclaim truth to people and warn people of what is in front of us. It's hard to think of this and then you think of people. That's why I think Paul said that his heart was filled with intense sorrow and great pain as he looked at his Jewish brethren, so many of them who didn't receive the truth. I pray that God gives us a balance here because God intends for us to love life, to enjoy life, and yet at the same time not to forget the doctrines that are here. So I just want to pray that God would give us the balance, that we would be a church that proclaims truth with compassion, with joy, knowing God and the great. I mean, thinking about eternal life that never ends, my mind can't get around that either. I rejoice in that. On the other side, it's hard for me to think of the opposite of that, and I pray with great compassion we, we might warn people. So let me just close us with a word of prayer tonight as we think through these things. Father, we pause before you tonight, and I simply wanted to be true to your word. And I thank you for the church here and for how you have worked and changed the lives of numbers of people. And I pray that that passion would remain and grow even stronger Father give us the right balance to enjoy your presence, enjoy your fellowship, the salvation, the desires. But Father, don't let us forget that there's another side to this. And you've made it known. Father with love. And may it produce above all else fervent prayers that you would save those around us. God, use us. Give us a great week as we seek to serve you. Bless every family here and help us to pray for those that are lost. We know that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Give us joy this week as we live for you